Welcome to Saints. In this podcast, we'll be discovering and discussing fascinating insights to topics and events found in Saints, the story of the Church of Jesus Christ in the latter days. This new four-volume narrative is a history of the Restoration. You can also read it and all the material we'll be discussing today on LDS.org or on your Gospel Library app. And now, Saints. Today I'm joined by two wonderful guests. Uh, First, Matt McBride, who is a digital content manager for the Church History Department. Welcome, Matt. Good to be here. And again, we're joined by our good friend, Sarah Eyring. Sarah has recently read Saints Volume 1 and will be sharing her thoughts and questions in our episode today. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you. Hello. Today, we're going to be discussing uh, chapter 35, A Beautiful Place. This is a chapter that talks a lot about Nauvoo, and as the the scene opens, it's really kind of a sad moment for just a minute. We lose a good friend. Bishop Partridge has been with us. He's the first bishop in the church. His family has moved to this swampy mess of a land, um, trying to get settled in Nauvoo. And his 18-year-old daughter, Harriet, passes away, and then Bishop Partridge. And I just wanted to just take a minute and sort of say goodbye. I love Bishop Partridge. He was faithful. He was tarred and feathered, and just nothing stopped him in, uh, in his faith. I love what they say in his obituary about his faith. Uh, can I read that? It says, No man had the confidence of the church more than he. His religion was his all. For this he spent his life, and for this he laid it down. I thought that was beautiful. It is beautiful, and um, and what a great man he was and a great example of enduring to the end. Matt, we were hoping today we could talk with you about Nauvoo, about the building of Nauvoo and the, the temple. First of all, Nauvoo, where did the name come from? How did the city change its name? It was Commerce, right? Right. It's Commerce, Illinois. Joseph Smith at one point, this, as the story goes, is standing at a, at a vantage and looking over the city and decides that he's going to change the name to Nauvoo. He said that Nauvoo was a Hebrew word uh, that means beautiful. And you may recall that Joseph Smith in the mid-1830s in Kirtland had hired a man named Joshua Satius, who was a Hebrew teacher, to come and teach Joseph Smith and others in the School of the Prophets about Hebrew. It's a way of helping them understand uh, the Bible better. And in Joshua Satius's Hebrew grammar that Joseph Smith had. We have this word Nauvoo that's there, and that appears to be where Joseph Smith got the name for the city. Wow. I, I did not know that. So it's actually a Hebrew word. It's a real Hebrew word. So as the saints begin to settle in Nauvoo, before we get to the, the city, there's a, a story here about William W. Phelps. William had been a, a trusted friend and advisor and leader in the church and then his testimony against Joseph and the saints had been part of the reason that Joseph was imprisoned um, in Missouri. William sends a letter to Joseph Smith. Can you tell us a little bit about that and what Joseph's response was? Yeah, William had gone through this rough patch in 1838 and 1839, during which he was actually excommunicated twice. So uh, once in 1838, he's rebaptized, but then, as you mentioned, he testifies against Joseph in 39. He's excommunicated again. He's, he's feeling bad about what happened, feeling this loss and, and wanting pretty sincerely to repent and to come back and to be uh, a member of the church again and to have that fellowship that he enjoyed earlier. So he, um, he writes 
a letter to Joseph Smith, and it's accompanied by a letter by a couple of apostles, too, uh, vouching for William's sincerity. William asks Joseph Smith for forgiveness in this letter, and just weeks later uh, receives a reply from Joseph. And this it's this really uh, well-known letter, or uh, rather well-known letter, in which Joseph Smith extends the hand of fellowship again to W.W. Phelps, his dear friend. Can you share with us just that that one line, that sort of uh, poetic line from the letter? Yeah, it's the postscript to the letter. So Joseph writes this letter, and he's um, he's excited and and happy to bring William back and to forgive him. And then at the very end of the letter, he he adds this kind of poetic postscript. He says, "Come on, dear brother, since the war is past, for friends at first are friends again at last." And William comes back to Nauvoo and participates. Uh, in all of the exciting things that happen there. Pretty amazing. I mean, what do you think, Sarah? If your friend had like testified and put you in jail, are you as forgiving? I don't know if I'm that forgiving. I don't think I could have been as forgiving. I hope I could have, but this is really very inspirational, Joseph's willingness to forgive. And not just in this case, but in in several cases, and as described in this book, is really remarkable. It does, I think, give us a picture into his character that he, he really genuinely believed in forgiveness because it seems that once he's made up his mind, like William's back in the in the throng of it, you know, and they're just moving along. So something we can all learn from. Joseph is is lots of things in this burgeoning city. He's being called on to do many things. People even ask him to speak at funerals. He's a popular speaker, and he gives a speech at a funeral of a man by the name of Seymour Brunson. We learned some new doctrine as part of his speech there. What do we what do we learn? Well, at the funeral of Seymour Brunson, Joseph Smith introduces for the first time the the teaching that we can be baptized by proxy for people who have died. It's it's an exciting moment. And one of the things that I really like about it is the way that it illustrates how revelation works line upon line um, through the prophet. You may recall that Joseph Smith has had several experiences in his life up to this point where he and others in his family and in the church have wondered, been concerned about ancestors, friends, relatives who didn't have the opportunity to accept the gospel, to be baptized in the church in this new covenant that's been restored. Alvin, his brother, is one that that comes to mind. Our listeners will remember that, that Alvin was you know, Joseph's hero. And then in the Kirtland Temple, he saw Alvin and is wondering, how did he get there? How is he saved? He didn't get baptized. Yeah, and the, the vision's very reassuring, but it, it doesn't answer that question that you asked, the how question. Right, it right. says, Alvin is there, don't worry. And this is this is wonderful. And Joseph's very happy and very excited to talk about this. But at the same time, that, that question of how isn't really answered. And, and so for a few years, you have members exercising faith in that vision, uh, but not knowing exactly how it's supposed to work. They'll speculate a little bit. They wonder, uh, Joseph Fielding is is an example. He wonders, well, maybe at the time of the resurrection, uh, people who were faithful, who were righteous, who would have accepted the gospel will then have the opportunity to kind of line up and, and be baptized, receive the ordinances of the gospel. And then he says, though, that when he heard about the doctrine of baptisms for the dead, and in one moment, all of these questions that he had were were cleared up and everything was made um, clear to him. And this really begins at that moment in um, in 1840. In August, when in Joseph speaks at Seymour Brunson's funeral, uh, introduces that principle for the first time, and, and points out that it's a, a teaching that comes from the New Testament. 
Yeah, Joseph is referencing Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead? If the dead rise not at all, why are they then baptized for the dead? He's referencing this teaching, and it seems that it's a pretty exciting moment. A woman by the name of Jane Nyman immediately, as, as I understand it, goes down to the Mississippi River to be baptized for her son, Cyrus. Now, did I get that right? She was baptized for her son? That's right. Again, sticking with this theme of line upon line revelation, Joseph Smith is introducing a new principle, and the saints embrace it, and they're so excited. And yes, she's baptized for her son. She's a widow. She's lost her son recently. Uh, she's baptized for him. And Latter-day Saints today might look at that and say, well, yeah, why is, why is this woman being baptized for a man? That's not how we do things in, in temples today. That was something that changed later in 1845. And Brigham Young says, you know, the Lord didn't reveal everything to Joseph Smith right. about this principle, but he continues to reveal truth to us line upon line, and, and Brigham Young announces this, this change later. But during this early phase uh, in the early 1840s, members are just excited. They're zealous. They really want to go out there and participate. They want to redeem their family members. They're, they're so excited they'll go to their family Bibles, look for the names. They'll write their family members in, in distant cities and say, please send me the names you know, of our, of our ancestors so that I can do this work. I want to be of use, of help to, to our family. It's just a couple of weeks later that um, at General Conference, Joseph again teaches this principle. And let's listen to a little clip here from the book that explains that and kind of the enthusiasm, this zealousness that you've talked about. Between sessions of the conference, the saints rushed to the Mississippi River where several elders stood waist-deep in the water, beckoning them to be baptized for their deceased grandparents, fathers, mothers, siblings, and children. Soon after, Hiram was baptized for his brother Alvin. As Valate Kimball watched the elders in the river, she longed to be baptized for her mother, who had died more than a decade earlier. She wished Heber was back from England to perform the ordinance, but since Joseph had urged the saints to redeem the dead as soon as possible, she decided to be baptized for her mother right away. I think that's just an incredible image, and I love this example, which is one of many in these stories that we learn about, of people who um, immediately take action when they learn about truth. And that, that comes sometimes in the form of leaving for a mission right away, or, uh, you know, getting married right away or getting baptized for the dead right away. I just think it's so incredible. As you said, they're, they're zealous, they're excited, and they are ready to do whatever is right. I love that image. It, it reminds me of, of Lehi and the, the tree of life, right? You know, as, as soon as he partakes of the fruit, he, he looks around for his family. Totally. And it feels like these saints are doing the same thing. Like, the, we can do that. Uh, Grandma was never baptized. Let's go. Let's go down to the river right now. It's really an amazing moment. Now, we later have a revelation that comes that gives a bit of structure about this practice and also about a new building that we need to build in this city. Tell us a little bit about that. Yes, everybody's excited. We want to do this. Where's the water? <laughs> we'll go straight to the river. We'll do the baptisms. But but yes, in, in January of 41, uh, what happens that's really significant in, in, in this revelation uh, that is now in section 124 of the Doctrine and Covenants is that Joseph Smith ties together 
the building of temples and the worship that we do in temples with this new and exciting practice of baptisms for the dead. Up to that point, they didn't talk about baptisms for the dead in conjunction with the temple. But beginning with this January 19th, 1841 revelation, those two concepts are, are tied together forever. The revelation says that baptisms need to be performed in a house that's been built for this purpose. And so this gives new, uh, a new impetus to the temple project. The temple had already been contemplated. You know, the saints had tried to build temples in Missouri. They were driven from the state, but that only delayed this, this imperative uh, to build a temple. And so when they get to Nauvoo, they're already in the early part of 1840 talking about it. In the summer of 1840, Joseph Smith gives this big stirring sermon about the temple that we're going to build and how important this is, how, how the Lord wants this done, uh, and that he has important things to reveal to us in this temple. And so they break ground for the temple in the fall. Uh, they they assign uh, some men to be uh, part of a temple committee that's going to oversee the work. They find an architect, William Weeks. The story goes that uh, Joseph Smith did kind of like a, a contest where he invited several people to uh, submit designs for a temple. Okay. And when he saw William Weeks' design, he said, this is the man, this is the design, and embraces William Weeks. And then Weeks then becomes this important figure throughout the process of, of building the temple. And is the, is, he and Joseph Smith work closely together, and they're the ones that kind of have the vision for it. Uh, Joseph as a prophet and William Weeks as someone with some architectural training. On josephsmithpapers.org, there are some of these original drawings of uh, William Weeks and the Nauvoo Temple sketches of what, it, you know, architectural drawings. I mean, it's just pretty cool that we still actually have those mm -hmm. actual drawings from, from William Weeks. Who's involved in, in the construction? We've got the architect, we've got a prophet. It's going to take a lot of work. How do they pull this off? Well, that's the thing that I love about this story the most, and I and I feel like, um, yeah, the story of the temple really is in in many ways the story of Nauvoo. Um, it required everybody, and they had a connection to that temple that we don't always have as members of the church today. Where, you know, we know we pay our tithing, and then that goes toward the construction of temples, but then that's handled and managed by uh, trained architects and and contractors and and people who you know have expertise in those areas. This wasn't something that was available to the saints in Nauvoo. Every every bit of the work that was done on that temple was was consecrated work. Everything from uh, the work that was done to save up a little bit here and a little bit there to make tithing contributions to the temple, uh, to the work that is done by the stone cutters, the the men who went to Wisconsin to to raft lumber to Nauvoo to help frame the building. The Wisconsin pineries. There's a whole history of our saints that lots of people don't even know about the Wisconsin pineries. And right. Th those those logs just weren't hanging around in Nauvoo. No, not a lot of lumber there. They they had to bring it down from <laughs> Wisconsin. They'd put all the raft, excuse me, all the logs on a river and just kind of uh, tie them together in rafts. And then someone would just stand on these logs and float down the river and, and park them at Nauvoo where they'd be available for building houses. Uh, and of course, the temple. Uh, but it's it's an amazing story, um, and everybody contributed. That's a, what's amazing about it. I did want to add that there, in some ways, were actually two temples built in Nauvoo. Hmm. And the reason I say that is I'm borrowing a little bit from Elder Boyd K. Packer, who in 1993 at General Conference, when they were commemorating the centennial, the, the 100th anniversary of the construction of the Salt Lake Temple, he said, 
we love this building. We love the stones. It's a beautiful temple, and, 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 and it's exciting to commemorate it. But the important thing isn't so much the stone and the wood. It's the invisible temple within. Uh, and he talks about this invisible temple that's the same in all temples. And, of course, what he's referring to are the doctrines, the teachings, uh, the ordinances and covenants that are related to temples. And so the way I like to think about it is that in Nauvoo, that's when both the, of course, the stone, the limestone Nauvoo temple was built, but also this invisible temple that now we all enjoy today. That's where it came into being. This is where it's revealed. It's where it's introduced for the first time. It's where members experience the endowment for the first time, marriage ceilings for the first time, baptisms for the dead in a temple font for the first time. Everything we think about as temple work, uh, as that invisible temple was, uh, was built, was constructed in, in Nauvoo through, uh, through Revelation. That's really interesting. I didn't realize the history there. So how is it different than the Kirtland Temple? It's a good question. I, I think if you were to ask a, a member of the church in 1839 or 1840, right at the onset of this project to build the Nauvoo Temple, you know, what do you do in temples? Mm-hmm. Well, they say, well, it's a place for congregational meetings and we meet. It's a place of education. It's a place of revelation. Uh, you know, of course, going off of their experience in Kirtland. Sure. But in Nauvoo, and and some of that carries forward in Nauvoo, and even in the early temples in Utah, if you look at uh, the way that the Nauvoo temple was designed, it it accommodated congregational worship too. And and the early Utah temples have large meeting halls in them as well. But increasingly, beginning in Nauvoo, the, the space in that temple is devoted more and more to some of the things that are talked about in that revelation mm-hmm. in January of 41, these, these ordinances and covenants, of course, that we associate so much with the temple today. So I think that shift is what happens right in Nauvoo, and, and you see that happening uh, as, you, as you look at the way that the saints um, interacted with that temple, worshipped in that temple. That's you know. so interesting. What can you tell us about some of the iconic elements of the temple, the the sunstones, the moonstones, the stars? You know, we, we see some of those. Even on the Salt Lake Temple, there's these really cool uh, symbolic things. Where, where did that idea come from? What, what do we know about that? Well, we know that this is something that originated with Joseph Smith. He talked a little bit about how he saw the temple in vision. And the symbolism of the Nauvoo Temple is really fascinating we have one account only, I think, that Rennick might give us some insight into what, what those symbols meant to Joseph Smith and to the saints in Nauvoo. And it comes from a man who was a stonecutter that worked on the temple. Uh, and he left this in his, his journal, his autobiography. Uh, and I'm assuming that this is something he's learning from Joseph Smith, who spent a lot of time in the stonecutter shop. Um, he didn't manage it from afar. He's there with them. We have accounts of him working in the quarry, get out of stone. But Joseph's interacting with these people. And, and this stonecutter, whose name was Wandel May, said that the uh, symbols of the, the suns and, and moons and stars on the temple relate to the woman that's mentioned in Revelation chapter 12. Wow. Who has uh, the moon at her feet, and whose face is sh- sh- shining like the sun and who has a crown of stars over her head. Um, and, and so sometimes we look at the, the te- well, and we say, well, how come the sun's up here and the moon's down here and the stars are on top of the sun? <laughs> That's not what I would have expected. I thought maybe this related to the three degrees of glory and how come they're all out of order? And I think that this source from Wandel Mace maybe gives us 
the best information we have about maybe what this symbolized. And that woman in the book of Revelation is, is representative of the church, and she gives birth to the kingdom of God. And really, the temple is the place where church members, you know, can come and make those covenants that that bring them in and and help establish the kingdom. So I, I think that's um, that's kind of a cool source. That's awesome, Matt. You mentioned that there's people are donating of their time. They're donating funds. Um, what were their experiences like working on the temple? Well, here's here's one example. One of the people that I think is one of the heroes of this story of building the temple is a man named William Player. Now, he de- he donates a lot of time and he donates money uh, as a tithe payer as well. But he also donates a lot of expert. He brings a lot of expertise to the table. He's a convert to the church. He joins in England, and back then, of course, you didn't just listen to the sessions and agree to be baptized. You agreed also to migrate or expressed a desire to move. And he is told by the missionaries that his expertise as a stone cutter, a stonemason in England are needed in Nauvoo. Uh, they need him to consecrate himself and his life and his time to help build the temple. Wow. So he joins the church. He comes all the way across the Atlantic uh, and to Nauvoo uh, and joins the temple team in 1841 and starts uh, setting stone. And apparently the first courses of stone weren't very well done. And so the first thing he did was to help uh, bring his expertise and knowledge to the table in, in setting them right. And then he was there supervising the setting of all the stone in the entire building for five years. And there's this great story late in the, in the project where uh, Sidney Rigdon, who at that point had parted ways with the Quorum of the Twelve, as, uh, who were now leaders of the church after Joseph Smith's death, and he had prophesied publicly in Nauvoo at this little meeting that not another stone would be set on the temple. He said, I prophesy in the name of the Lord that another stone will not be set. And William Player was standing there with a couple of his assistants. And he hears that and he immediately turns around, leaves the meeting and walks up the hill uh, with his assistants and finds a stone. And they worked the, the windlass to bring the stone to the top of the building and they put the mortar in and they set the stone just to, to prove Sidney Rigdon a false prophet in that instance. <laughs> wow. And this is, this is a story that I think gives you a little bit of insight into how the saints felt about the temple. They were not going to be stopped. They had people from the outside that are trying to stop them uh, and, and get them to leave the state. They had dissenters from within. You had Sidney Rigdon and, and some of his challenges. But the saints had heard from Joseph Smith that they needed to receive an endowment. And they were not going to be stopped. And so I just think that's a really beautiful story, even though as soon as they complete the temple and receive the endowment, they have to abandon it and leave into the wilderness. We're going to learn more about that in in future episodes and future chapters. But it's it's amazing just to know of their, even though they knew, as you say, that they weren't going to be able to stay there long term, Mm -hmm. the commitment to finish and eventually receive their endowments, over 5,000 people received their endowments in the Nauvoo Temple, is just a testament to their will and their faith. It's, it's amazing. So what happens after the saints leave Nauvoo? What happens to that temple? We only, I only know, uh, I have a vague idea of what happens, but do you have any details? Well, one of the things that Brigham Young realizes as they're about to embark on this migration is that this is, this is unlike other migrations where they can just leave a family here and a family there. He wants them to all come together. And there were many people in Nauvoo that were so poor they couldn't afford to make the trip. And so maybe 
you know, one of the big priorities for Brigham Young as they're as they're leaving Nauvoo is to try to find out how to fund it and how to bring the poor with them. And one of the possible ways that they think to do that would be to sell the temple. Wow. And so even as they're beginning to start the endowment in the temple and introduce it uh, to the members for the first time in December of 1845, at the same, the, those same, that same week, they're having discussions with um, some Catholics uh, and a couple of other groups who are potential buyers for the temple. Now, they, they were never able to really s- sell it and realize um, the money. They had to find money in other ways to help get, get the poor and get others um, out to Utah. But that was kind of, that was what they did. That was their first thought. And of course, eventually the temple was burned by an arson a couple of years after the main body of the church leaves. And then the stone walls are still remaining uh, after the fire. And, but a lot of those stone wall, the stone in those walls was toppled by a, a tornado. Oh, interesting. Shortly after that. And so, so then um, there's just one wall left and eventually that's taken down because it's deemed hazardous and the stones just made their way into other buildings in Nauvoo. And so it just kind of, I, re- wow. I remember uh, visiting a few years ago, the Smithsonian in Washington, DC and coming around a corner and going, I know what that is. They have one of the actual sunstones from the Nauvoo temple. I have no idea how they got it, but that's, that's, the, that's a real one. money for it. Yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's a real stone from the yeah, temple. Absolutely. There's still a lot of stones that remain. Some are big and some are small, but it's rare to find those really decorative stones, the, the sun stones or the moon stones that are complete and in good shape. But there are a few that are out there still. Do you guys remember, I forget the date, but do you remember General Conference when President Hinckley announced that we were going to build a temple in Nauvoo again? It was yes. electric. I, I was in absolute shock. I know this is a little bit outside of saints, but it's thrilling for me today to know that once again, the house of the Lord stands in Nauvoo. Those very same ordinances are administered to the saints and that the work that was started there, it wasn't all for naught. Yes, there are a lot of years in between, but we have a temple again where people can go and, and receive baptism for the dead, for their deceased ancestors, right there in Nauvoo on the very same piece of land. Yeah. Amazing. Well, thank you both, Matt and Sarah, for joining us today. Thank you, our listeners, for uh, tuning in. Please join us again next week where we'll discuss another chapter in Saints. You can always learn more about the Saints at saints.lds.org, where you can download the latest videos, read the latest topics, and participate with with us on social media. You can also download this podcast and many others at mormonchannel.org. I'm Ben Godfrey. Thank you for listening. Thanks for joining us today for Saints. And don't forget to read more of this historical narrative on lds.org or on your Gospel Library app. Join us again for our next episode, where we'll once again discover fascinating insights of church history found in Saints, the story of the Church of Jesus Christ in the latter days. Thank you.